Welcome to the seventh episode of the Neural Compass Podcast. My name is Steven Sinecrope, and I hope everyone had a wonderful and safe holiday season. I'm currently using a new microphone, so let me know what you guys think. As always, everything I say here is for educational entertainment purposes and not medical advice. Today's explorative topic is addiction and reward, a neuroscientific topic with implications spanning from daily behaviors to the meaning of life. Clear understanding of these concepts helps to illuminate what differentiates my mother's daily dose of coffee and the violent addictions to painkillers and amphetamines some people unfortunately develop. Let's begin with the definition of addiction given by NIDA, the National Institute on Drug Abuse, a branch of the NIH, National Institute of Health, backed by the United States government. Addiction is defined as a chronic relapsing disorder characterized by compulsive drug seeking and continued use despite harmful consequences and long-lasting changes in the brain. This definition is based upon what is called the disease model for addiction. The intricacies of that I'll get into after I give a brief explanation as to what is really going on in addiction in the brain. To understand addiction in the brain at a basic level, you need to keep in mind three general structures and one key neurotransmitter. The neurotransmitter involved in addiction and the driving force of the reward pathway is dopamine. The brain regions involved are the one, the prefrontal cortex, two, the ventral tegmental area or the VTA, and three, the striatum. If that sounds like a lot of mumbo jumbo, I'll try to boil it down a little bit more. The VTA is for our purposes simply a dopamine factory, which then transports dopamine to the striatum whose role is a little more complex. The striatum generates goals and is tied to the motor system. In essence, it establishes a craving or desire for something. And finally, the prefrontal cortex is the advanced executive function decision-making region, which makes the final steering of behavior. A good analogy would be to think of the VTA as the Amazon factory, producing all the goods, packaging them up. Um, and the striatum, would be the advertisements and the websites recommending what should be bought and the platform you could buy it on. And the prefrontal cortex is the consumer, taking in all the information given and making final purchases. So now try to keep those structures in mind as I run you through what occurs in an addict's brain when a trigger is perceived, which can be in the form of almost anything, even things tangentially related to the subject of the individual's addiction. For instance, even something as mundane as a red car passing by could be somewhat, could be looking similar to that of a dealer, a dealer's car, and provide a trigger for a craving. According to Mark Lewis, neuroscientist and developmental psychologist from the University of Toronto, as well as a former addict himself, once a trigger is perceived by the posterior regions of the brain, such as the occipital lobe for visual processing or other sensory cortex, it causes a stream of dopamine from the VTA to the striatum which is the dopamine factory to the craving generator, which causes the desire to sate the addiction to become, to come into fruition. The prefrontal cortex is then required to make action plans as to how the craving can be satisfied. Okay, so now that you understand the general mechanism and brain reasons involved, what underlies the formation of an addiction? And how does one lose the ability to control their desire? Neuroscientist Scott Russo published research in 2010 in Trends in Neurosciences detailing research on changes to synapses in the nucleus accumbens of addict brains. 
For reference, the nucleus accumbens is a structure within the striatum region, which for our purposes is the craving generator. He found that in the addict group, there was a reduction in relevant synaptic density, which a synapse, synapses are the junctions between the basic units of the brain, the neurons. Um, and this sounds greatly troubling, appearing as a destruction of neural function. However, it's a bit more complex because a reduction in synaptic density actually also occurs common, commonly in the human brain and is closely tied to development. It's a well-studied concept known as synaptic pruning. And substance addictions, as opposed to behavioral addictions, there can also be more specific uh, synaptic changes, usually an increase in the receptors for dopamine or um, indirect uh, neurochemicals that can affect dopamine intake. Um, and this is what creates tolerance in these individuals. Uh, interestingly enough, infants are confused by a surplus of synapses. And as they develop, they will generate some new synapses in what is known as synaptogenesis to create novel new associations, but also will reduce their synaptic density in order to increase efficiency and consolidate neural circuits. So it's like learning how to juggle. When you first start learning, it'll require a lot of brain power and focus to concentrate on exactly where the balls are throwing and where your hands are. But as you get more and more skilled at it, it requires less and less effort. It becomes more and more automatic. It requires less and less activation of the prefrontal cortex. The big takeaway from that is that the neural mechanisms for addiction are rooted in the fundamental developmental processes for learning. As an addiction forms, synaptic pruning is occurring and the pathway from the VTA to the striatum to the prefrontal cortex begins involving less and less prefrontal cortex activity, less and less conscious decision making which begins to explain why it can be so difficult to control an established addiction. The exact same process occurs in skill-based learning, as I mentioned, such as juggling or riding a bike. It takes less and less conscious monitoring and effort to achieve a desired outcome. And this same mechanism is observed in substance addictions as well as behavioral addictions, um, such as those to gambling, pornography, sex, etc. Mark Lewis, the neuroscientist from the University of Toronto mentioned earlier, also outlines three processes that contributes to an addict's continu continued use, which are deep learning, delayed discounting, and ego fatigue. Deep learning is what I have just mentioned, where perpetuation of addiction creates relief and positively reinforces the behavior and afterwards leaves a loss, which encourages repetition of the behavior. This idea of a loss can range from physical withdrawal symptoms to just a simple depressive mood. And the underlying characteristic of this is a hypofunctional dopaminergic system. So after you give in and indulge in this dopamine, dopamine reward pathway, afterward you have this hypofunctional period where the brain's basal reward system is working less efficiently. The second concept, delay discounting, is the breakdown of the ability for one to restrain immediate benefits in order to achieve and seek longer term goals. Like skipping dessert to attain that trim 2021 body you've now promised yourself. In addiction, uh, the increased activity of the striatum fueled by dopamine intake hyper focuses an individual on the craving. Remember that the striatum is the craving generator for our purposes. So hyper focus on this will make it more and more difficult to move beyond that immediate feeling of desire. 
All right, the third process mentioned is known as ego fatigue, which is an interesting concept. Um, can be basically defined as a loss of self-control. And it's a concept first explored by one Roy Baumeister, professor of psychology at Queensland University. Baumeister provided evidence that cognitive control of impulses could be depleted by cravings or cognitive load. The simplistic experiment conducted and mentioned in Mark Lewis's lecture was where hungry participants were given cognitive tests. They were either able or unable to eat from a bowl of cookies in front of them. Those needing to suppress their cravings for food show decreased performance in cognitive tests, which is an answer you may come to intuitively. Because the concept of ego fatigue, as with all other addiction processes, is a normal human process that we all experience. Now, I'm sure you can imagine how more cravings and addiction with higher intensity could be extrapolated to more cognitive dampening and in turn less ability for the prefrontal cortex to control these impulses thus forming a vicious cycle. To reiterate what was just discussed, I discussed three neuroscientific processes by which addictions operate. Deep learning, delayed counting, and ego fatigue. Reinforcement of indulging in cravings, such as giving in to your addiction, a focus on the immediate craving, and the breakdown of self-control. Okay, now that the mechanisms have been laid out, I want to round out this episode by first discussing the models for addiction, which prior to researching this episode, I had no idea the ongoing tension surrounding them. And then I'll get into some more practical information. In terms of models, according to the Australian Department of Health website, in the 18th and 19th century, addiction was understood as a moral failure. Addicts were subjects of social ridicule and regarded as weak-minded and were punished with whippings, public beatings, and jail time. Sounds pleasant. <clears throat> Jumping to the present, we have what's called the disease model, which is the most widely accepted and the model endorsed by the U.S. governmental agency, NIDA, the National Institute on Drug Abuse, as mentioned earlier. This model posits that addiction is a disease either present or not present, not a continuum, and that addiction is a chronic irreversible condition. The disease, has met, the disease model has many advantages, but believe it or not, also bears the scrutiny of many psychologists and neuroscientists. Let's start with some pros of the currently accepted disease model. Primarily, it serves to undo the moral model and reduce the stigma and fear surrounding addiction. According to a 2017 TED Talk by Michael Botticelli, who served as the director of the White House Office on National Drug Control Policy under Obama, stated that genetic predisposition can account for around 50% of the risk for substance abuse addiction. And this is further supported by numerous studies showing mutation affecting addiction risk. One such study being the research of Christy Fowler from the University of California, Irvine, who published in a Nature paper, research outlining how mutation in nicotinic receptor of the habenula can mediate increased addiction risk through mitigating the negative effects of higher doses of tobacco. It's not really important that you understand the intricacies of this research, just that genetics matter when it comes to addiction. Despite all the pauses of this model, there are also significant drawbacks and counter arguments present. The main issue with the disease model is that it can be largely harmful to the addicts themselves. And a higher relapse rate has actually been observed in rehabilitation programs operating under the disease model. This is most likely due to patients considering their addiction uncontrollable and giving in to the fatalism indicated by the binary chronic irreversible definition of addiction. 
given by this model. Also, the medical model really only applies to substance abuse addiction. Even though the neuroscientific mechanisms, such as those mentioned earlier in the episode, apply broadly to both substance and behavioral addictions, and even that most substance abuse addictions also have a behavioral and habitual component. With all this in mind, I think eventually we will see an adapted model with a focus on reducing stigma while more closely listening to the neuroscience. But that's your guys' job. Moving on to some more practical information. As I have repeated throughout this episode, the processes of addiction are the processes of habit. Also, according to the NIDA director, Nora Volkov, it is important to understand that learning and a habit is a developmental process, meaning that addiction is more potent and quickly forming in younger, more plastic minds. And I don't just mean adolescence, but all the way up until your mid-20s is when your prefrontal cortex is supposed to finish development. Addiction also has a high comorbidity with mental illness. So if you have already have a diagnosed mental illness, be careful. Your friends might be able to drink or smoke or whatever recreationally every once in a while, and you might not be able to, and that's okay. The brain is a dynamic developing organ, and the more in tune we can become with our own, the more prosperously we can live. By no means am I an expert in addiction, or neuroscience for that matter, and I cannot legally give medical advice. However, if you are listening to this podcast and nervously wondering whether you could be addicted to marijuana, sex, pornography, nicotine, gambling, anything, the first step is not to just say no. That government slogan was a ridiculous mistake by the U.S. government's war on drugs. Saying to yourself that you have to stop oftentimes just places immense pressure on yourself, and this pressure feeds into earlier mentioned ego fatigue and relapse. The place to start is intellectualizing your addiction. What I mean by that is addictions often result as a combination of genetics, environments, and or trauma. So try to think back about what psychological hole your addiction is filling, or what does fill in the blank do for you. From there, try and combat delay discounting by envisioning what you see for yourself in the future to try and move beyond those immediate cravings more effectively. Effectively, we're reconnecting the prefrontal cortex to the striatum. Now it would be arrogant and obdurate of me to assume that everyone can just do that and conquer their addiction, but it's somewhere to start. Also, recognize that it's okay to be unable to do it alone. You aren't morally weak or pathetic and always deserving of respect. A rehabilitation process and medications aren't the only means of help either. In many cases, cognitive behavioral therapy or dialectic talk therapy and many other psychological treatments can be as effective or even more effective than any medication you could take. It's really hard. And the hardest part is to begin to regain control, to even make the first step. So if any of you are in this situation and have at least come that far, I'm proud of you. And you should be proud of yourself too. One last thing to think about before I end here is that research is revealing more and more that love too involves almost all of the mechanisms of addiction, which really gives validation to the idea that there's a difficulty in getting over a relationship or a past love and support for the idea of love in general, if there are any skeptics remaining out there. Also that it affects different people differently. Genetics play a big role in addiction. It might take some people longer than others to get over someone, get over a relationship or a past love. It's not necessarily a bad thing or anything wrong with you. Okay, while we're on this hopeful tune, I'm going to close the episode with a poem in the hopes that it can bring some of the scientific concepts I've talked about 
into reality through abstract and beautifully constructed imagery. This is I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings by Maya Angelou, one of the most beautiful poems I have ever read. I know why the caged bird sings. The free bird leaps on the back of the wind and floats downstream till the current ends and dips his wings in the orange sun rays and dares to claim the sky. But a bird that stalks down his narrow cage can seldom see through his bars of rage. His wings are clipped, his feet are tied, so he opens his throat to sing. The caged bird sings with fearful trill of the things unknown but longed for still, and his tune is heard on the distant hill for the caged bird sings of freedom. The free bird thinks of another breeze and the trade wind soft through the sighing trees and the fat worms waiting on dawn bright lawn as he names the sky his own. But a caged bird stands on the grave of dreams, his shadow shouts on a nightmare scream, his wings are clipped and his feet are tied, so he opens his throat to sing. The caged bird sings with a fearful trill of things unknown but longed for still, and his tune is heard on the distant hill, for the caged bird sings of freedom. Freedom is a concept closely intertwined with addiction. The freedom to control oneself, to steer your own destiny, make your own choices. My favorite line of the whole poem is, But a caged bird stands on the grave of dreams. The destruction of future plans and dreams in the face of imprisonment. The poem is timeless, and communicating this through birds as opposed to humans, for example, emphasizes the, the presence of mind. Floating above the mortal action and mortal coil and physical presence, Drifting along the breeze or caged up and trilling, for a dreamer's mind is not often within the body, but drifting through dreams and fantasy. And with that, we have come to the conclusion of the seventh episode of the NeuralCompass podcast. I hope you enjoyed, and as always, follow me on Instagram at NeuralCompassPodcast and on Twitter at Neural underscore Compass. Happy New Year, and here's to a better year for each of us.